0: Welcome everybody to the Everyone is Interesting podcast. We're here with yet another great episode. I'm your host Ben and we've got a very special guest today, Aaron London, Rabbi Aaron London. <laughs> and that already is a spoiler alert. We're going to talk to Aaron about becoming a rabbi.
1: Ooh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for coming. I know you're here for only a short time but you made time to come down to the Everyone's Interesting studio.
1: Well it's a nice thing to do on a what is it today? Tuesday morning.
0: We've known each other for a while. We went to elementary school, high school together, and, uh, and now you are working as a rabbi in New York City.
1: Well, yeah, I'm working as a hospital chaplain. Uh, I just finished my first year of residency, and I'll be starting in about a week's time. a second year of residency specializing in palliative care. Cool. Yeah, although palliative care is not necessarily imminent end of life. Okay. It could just be someone with chronic illness or a long-term illness where it changes their ways of living. So the team tries to work together to help this person and their family have the best quality of life based on their prognosis and diagnosis.
0: Right, and which hospital are you at?
1: Well, Cornell. Uh, it's on York and 68th, part of New York Presbyterian.
0: Okay, and what neighborhood would that be called?
1: The Upper East Side.
0: So that's And that's where you're going to be living now?
1: That, I will be moving there next week also. It's a really big week next week. Big week for you. Very big.
0: All right, so we were in school together, a typical modern Orthodox Jewish day school uh, called Kushner. I think at the time, the idea of a female Orthodox rabbi was just certainly... Not I
1: mean, existence? Not in,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. At what point did you say to yourself, like, Maybe I want to do this. Maybe this is what I, where I want to go with my career.
1: I guess it, the, the question of when did I want to become a rabbi is twofold. Because there's when did I want to do it, and then when was it actually a reality? Okay. So when did I want to do it was, I don't know, as early as I can remember, but it wasn't a reality. And I would say that Kushner, even though it was quote-unquote standard modern orthodox, it also wasn't. Not every school, and definitely not every elementary school, was teaching girls Gemara starting in the sixth grade. And definitely not every school who was teaching girls Gemara was giving them exactly the same classes as the boys. Weirdly, because of Kushner, (laughs) you know, basically forcing us to take Gemara, but I loved it. It was really fun. Or, I guess, in fifth grade, I had Rabbi Selangat, for Mishnah.
0: All right, yeah, he was uh, was my teacher as well. Yeah,
1: Yeah, and that was, there was something really exciting about that. Um, And same with Gemara the following year, and I just kind of loved doing that. And throughout college and grad school I found ways to both continue learning and teach you know it wasn't a reality until I was finishing grad school
0: but well, going back to fifth grade so you're yeah. you're enjoying learning Mishnah with Rabbi Selengut and already then you were starting to think about like Torah learning as kind of more of a long-term thing
1: yeah i like I really like this there's something exciting there's something meaningful People used to, or my parents used to joke that I'd have to be gentle, you know, because I wanted to go study at high levels, and that didn't totally exist.
0: And... Right. So you are already talking to your parents about this when you were little.
1: Yeah, or people were noticing. When I was a kid, I was really shy Yeah. and quiet, which is probably how you might remember me from way back when. But, or maybe not. I don't know.
0: Elementary school, did we, talk? we didn't talk to... Yeah, no, they, I think we just,
1: like, knew of each other's existence. Yeah,
0: I don't remember talking to people in other grades so much, unless we rode the bus together.
1: Which I didn't so do.
0: you didn't do that, so... <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I didn't really talk to so many people. I was right. really shy.
0: So, you were really in the books?
1: Really in the books, except in Gemara class. All mm-hmm. my teachers used to complain that I didn't talk enough, mm-hmm. except for my Gemara teachers, who used to complain that I spoke too much, and that I was difficult to teach. Because I would just argue with them. Yeah. I would get bored, so I'd, like read Rashi, which I'm 99% sure I didn't totally understand because I was a 6th grader, and that's crazy. I
0: don't know. 6th graders, I mean...
1: Rashi and the Gemara? Like, parts of it are Aramaic. I yeah. know that I didn't know what all those words are.
0: Right. But, uh, I mean, they teach Rashi to, you know, in Korean schools, they teach Rashi way back then, and yeah. I wouldn't say that, you know, you don't have what they have.
1: I mean, I didn't start learning Aramaic words until then. I mean, Rashi, Rashi for Chomish we started learning in what, first grade, second grade?
0: I don't even remember, probably. But uh, fine, so you're like really giving these teachers a run for their money in like fifth, sixth grade, and they're just like, you know, this kid.
1: Yep. Oh, yeah. Some teachers were more accepting than others.
0: Right. So like, was there a point where teachers started to kind of give you what you needed to like start to kind of move ahead?
1: I think I I think Rabbi Salanga definitely challenged me a lot. He was a
0: wonderful teacher. He was a great teacher. And just teacher. such a sweet guy.
1: Yeah. Like I, he didn't he wasn't bothered by me. Right. Uh, I think once I got into high school, Rabbi Khamudo having him for two years.
0: Right. Rabbi Khamudot is um, he's Israeli. I think mean, he was one of those if there's this thing with Shlikud where the, they come and they say, I'll come for a couple years and go right back. I think he's been in America now for twenty years.
1: Yeah, something like that.
0: And then he used to say, this is my last year, over and over again. And then I think he doesn't even say it anymore.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, not that I'm there, but um, I think he's got a kid in the neighborhood.
1: I think so, too. Yeah. Like, I think he came for the year and then... It's a kid saved. who
0: looks just like him, whose last name is Hamudot.
1: I would so, guess and that. And by kid, right? I mean someone in
0: their 20s, like... <laughs>
1: it's fine, it's fine. A son,
0: not a kid, a son. Um, so Rabbi Hamudot was, uh, Yeah. he helped you out?
1: Yeah. And that was a good class. It was intense.
0: Which class was that?
1: Uh, Gemara. Okay. So I was somehow the only freshman in the, my freshman year, Gemara's year, so that was also intense, and he wouldn't speak to us in English. Right. And our tests were right a sikum on everything we just learned in Hebrew.
0: Yeah, looking back, I think Kushner actually really was a strong Judaic training. I remember even in seventh grade, Rabbi Wachtel.
1: Oh yeah, that happened too. Right,
0: and we used to kind of have, we had an interesting relationship with him, but First of all, Rabbi Wachtel's father founded Kav Noir, if you've heard of this. It's one of the yeah. two main clinics for teens, English speaking teens, in Jerusalem. Really? Yeah. And like, wow, cool. To, yeah, like a really special organization, does great work. Uh, Wurzweiler usually places one or two students there. Okay. And I interviewed there, and um, a lot of people know, you know Rabbi Wachtel's father as this uh, really groundbreaking person who started up the organization for, for teens. Wow. So we've got Rabbi Wachtel as a teacher, and also he would have us write an entire Sikum on the whole chapter of Navi um, in Hebrew, um, mm-hmm. or who said, or to write the whole dialogue right. in our own words in Hebrew. I mean that's.
1: Or Moritzila, did you have her? I had
0: Moritzila. Yeah, I don't remember much in her class because there was a lot of shenanigans. That
1: makes sense. I had her nine times a week for three years. Oh gosh. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> but it was, you know, we weren't allowed to speak English. And we just had to memorize stuff. She would you know, point at us, and one of us would have to stand up and repeat something that we were supposed to memorize the night before.
0: Right. We really focused on some of the idiosyncrasies of the teachers, like, you know, she was this little Israeli woman, and she'd be very abrupt, and if she yelled at us, so we'd find that to be funny, and how we could kind of drive her nuts. All the while, we were being taught.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think about it that I did have a good basis. Yeah. I think Kushner was one of those places where if you wanted to learn, you could, and if you didn't want to, you could also.
0: Right, and this whole thing makes me wonder, and this is a little bit of a tangent, because I want to get back to how, it sounds like really Gemara, when you cite the origins of you want, you know becoming a rabbi, that Gemara is where that kind of began. Oh, yeah. Just... Um, all these kind of weird, or sometimes even more assertive behaviors that teachers would have, were what kind of helped us benefit, and... I'm thinking now there are people think, well, they need to be so nice, like that you need to really love the student, but that might mean even kind of being deferential to the student that might not be so good for students because we benefited from, let's say, someone like Moritzila putting her foot down and kind of randomly calling someone out, or Rabbi Wachtel, um, you know, struggling with us for control of the class.
1: Yeah, although I think that one of the things is that you need both the love and the strictness, because I don't think that any of those teachers didn't love us, right? Like, I think about the times where Mauritsila would help us out. You know, if she knew that you knew the material, but then you bombed your test, your, t- your grade average for the class will still be significantly higher yeah. than what your test average would be. Right. Um, and if there wasn't a love for this, her students, then you know, that never would have happened.
0: Right, right. So. <laughs> you know, that age, sixth, seventh grade, Love for students was not even on my radar. It's you know this is mean, all I was thinking about was am I in trouble or not? Am I uh, getting a disciplinary referral or germ speed letters?
1: Yeah, I never got any of those.
0: Right. Yeah. So I uh, I think I averaged I don't know if if I went a week without one you know that was good. I think it mostly has to do with just impulse control, speaking up in class or not, and you know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I hear that. No, I, right. I think as middle school students we yeah. don't. Realize it or think about it, but I think looking back, hmm. when I think about the teachers who pushed me the hardest, but I learned the most from, hmm. it was the teachers who also, in my opinion, actually really cared about us as students. Right. And they would push us, but mostly because they knew that they could.
0: Right. I also like that you mentioned Rabbi Selengut, because being that you're a female rabbi and gender is like a big part of the conversation, the first person you mentioned is not only is he a male teacher. But he's also, he's, I mean, he's, if he's not Haredi, he's yeshivish. You know, get yeah. to know him. He lives in Passaic in a, uh, definitely, and I know I've been to the shul that he goes to. It's a yeshivish place. Yeah. Teachers can be all kinds of people.
1: Oh, yeah. I think it's about being open to your students. One, I mean, I guess it's also, at that point in time, there weren't women who were teaching Mishnah and Talmud. I guess Nishmat, I think, used to have a program.
0: Well, like in S.A.R. or Frisch, there wasn't, there weren't, no, nothing?
1: Probably not. I would, I would be shocked. Hmm. There were, I think we were in, maybe I was a senior, or I don't know if it was my junior year or my senior year of high school, and we had the first, a first female Talmud teacher. Um, and that was a big deal, because right. they didn't exist.
0: Right, even though women have been studying Talmud now, for, at least in the New York area, for 50 60 70 years like it was being taught at yeah. stern in the 40s and 50s
1: but i think that's i mean it's i think it's actually still a problem today within women's learning yeah is that there are classes up to a certain point and then that's it right and then what the larger problem is and this is what it is a fascinating phenomenon now that there are places for orthodox women to get smicha or to learn halacha or talmud at a very high level right Your options are either to not learn at all, or to do these three to five year programs. Right. There's no, there are almost no places. If I wanted to just, you know, go to a weekly gemara shir, I don't want anything else except for to learn. Or it can be like, you know, in the evening after work for an hour. Right. We're not nothing extremely serious. No time. No long term commitment with certificate and tests. Right. That almost doesn't exist. Um, and so we're in this bizarre place where, one, there's very few learning places from the time you're 18 until you graduate undergrad, um, at the very least.
0: Oh, um, well, there's a JLIC. You're talking about on campus or off
1: campus? Well, both. I mean, but JLIC doesn't exist on every campus. So to say that right. that exists is not, I don't think that's a fair option. Um, and not all the campuses, even if they have a big Midrash or they have Talmud classes, are they open to women? And then, not every woman wants to become a rabbi, right. which I think is totally fair and valid. Right. But there are women who want to be able to keep up their Torah learning at a high level. Right. And that is something that is very hard to come by.
0: Right. The question is also, I understand you're really connected to Talmud a lot. When I hear that women really want to study Gemara, I used to joke, right, that I'm, as a guy, well, I go to Yeshiva and forced to study Talmud, in order to be serious about learning you've got to learn gemara in the morning for morning shear so that's in depth and then you've got the afternoon where maybe you can do other things at night you're doing gemara again you're doing it so you know you're doing okay. it more for um, general knowledge you're not necessarily doing analysis and i'm thinking well oh, i don't now i i like studying talmud when i do it but that this was kind of at an early time being really forced as like the de facto curriculum well, women have a wonderful opportunity. They don't have to follow that. Like, just like no. I find it annoying. I find it annoying. Like, oh, I'm, I have to put on tefillin every day. Well, if a woman wants to put on tefillin every day, why is she complaining? She's so lucky. She doesn't have to deal with like, you know, with all that.
1: Um, so, wow. So many things and feelings. Um, so one is I think that a, I actually think that the education system should be open to all in both directions. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, quote-unquote, women's learning and, quote-unquote, men's learning and what one likes more than the other, I think is, is false. Because I think that you find that there are women who learn better in the, quote-unquote, men's style, and there are men who learn, quote-unquote, better in what's known as women's style. And right. it's not open. And I think that that's a pro- huge problem.
0: That There are different educational formats and styles within the world of Jewish
1: learning. Right. And so like, I think that's one thing Two yeah. is that when it comes to Talmud study, the model that you were talking about almost doesn't exist. So even when you're in midrashot, for example, that will yes. give you morning Seder of Gemara, it is not as you'll not come out as high skills as in the boys' schools. It, yes. It's just not going to happen. Right. You're, you're not going to be pushed in the same way. Because I think that a lot of people see it as, oh, this is something cute and nice that they want to do, but, but not seeing as that it's actually a very serious way of Torah study and connection potentially to God and connection to Jewish Judaism. Right. Um, and that there's something that, I don't know, it sounds really intense, but like their soul is cleaving to, for lack of a better word, idea. Um, and it's not its not seen as real, and it's also seen as, oh, she just wants to be like the boys. Which, having spoken to many women, and I'll include myself, and I'll yeah. put myself out there, none of my learning had anything to do with, I want to be like the boys. I didn't care. I wanted mm. to go to a boys' yeshiva because the boys' yeshiva is at a higher level than most of the girls' right. midrashot. Right. But it had nothing to do with, I want to be better than, or... Right. There was no
0: glass ceiling of... I mean,
1: there, there obviously is a glass ceiling. Like, I'm not right. ignorant of that. Right. But my desires of smicha, my desires of higher lo- places of study, right. were because there was this immense joy and right. contentment that I found. Right. And I just wanted to be able to do it. And right. I was doing
0: it. Right, glass ceiling probably is the wrong thing. I guess what I meant is that it wasn't born out of envy. It was born out of just, this is awesome. I want to do more of this. And then down the road, I want to share this with others and yeah. turn other people on to what I find so awesome. For exactly.
1: Yeah. As, you know, I was thinking, I think about this often. I, I was already doing, the reason, you know, everyone's like, oh, so why do you want to become a rabbi? It's a very common question. And I, and I answer, honestly, I was already doing it, right? I was building community. I was teaching. I was answering people's religious questions, whether they were, you know, their beliefs in God or helping them through a difficult time. And I was teaching Torah. And if I put all of those things into one job, well, like, that's what a rabbi is. Or what ideally a rabbi should be. So why shouldn't I be able to do that? That was it. And then, obviously, because I still identify as Orthodox and I'm a woman, then it also, in turn, becomes this other political thing. But the core of it, and I would say for many of the women that I've interacted with that have studied the various institutions, that's the core of it for them. They just love Torah and they love Judaism and they want to be able to learn and interact with it at the highest level that they possibly can.
0: Yeah, it sounds amazing. I'm hearing just so much about Torah learning. I'm wondering if as you go through the training and start, you know, now you're working as a chaplain, the way I see it, Torah and service and community are all tied together, Mm -hmm. but there's sometimes there's like like there's teaching and then there's service, which doesn't always involve teaching. Have you found are different than what you expected in terms of how much service you have to do versus how much teaching and that kind of a uh, blend?
1: Um, in the role of a chaplain, or I'd say in my role as a chaplain in the hospital that I work in, my, I, a, lot of the, a lot of what I learned is not applicable. Uh, because I don't function only as a Jewish chaplain or okay. rabbi. I am a multi-faith chaplain. Also, even when I am a rabbi or a Jewish chaplain, no one is asking me halakha questions at the hospital, because they're, those who care about halakha are going to their rabbi, and those who don't care about halakha, don't care about halakha. Um Every so often, I might have a conversation with a doctor about general overview of what might be an idea within orthodoxy and end-of-life care, but... I always preface it that you need to make sure to talk to that family's rabbi, because every community deals with it differently, and their rabbi is going to be the one who's going to be helping them make that decision. So it's less in there. I do still get random questions from friends or people who know that I know stuff. I used to do a lot more teaching and scholar and residencing and yeah. things like that this year. I didn't really do so much, but so I found ways to teach. I'm hoping that this coming year I'll do a little bit more of that. So it's more about finding those places. And this year I have been trying to figure out, you know, what did I do sitting and struggling for five years and studying for five years, um, which is not easy.
0: It's not like school, like masters or PhDs where you spend a certain amount of time per day studying, like... When you're studying in a yeshiva type setting, you're studying eight, ten hours a day. Like, I mean, I don't think people understand just the sheer volume of study that you do. Oh
1: yeah, you're sitting there eight hours a day, four day, We were four days a week, and an hour for sh- of class time, an yeah. hour for lunch, and the rest of the time I was sitting in the Beit Midrash going over the material.
0: And during lunch, also, like you're not talking about, I don't know, us weekly. Like, I don't know if you had this at a. Well, let me rephrase this. When I was in yeshiva, there were lunch conversations, I think, were some of the most educational and just fascinating conversations. If I had a little recorder to record the yeshiva lunch conversations, I think it would be an amazing series. Oh, yeah, so,
1: definitely. I so
0: mean, what was lunch like for you guys, I guess, that's, as opposed to making my gross assumptions?
1: <laughs> I mean, there were days that we spoke about silly things.
0: Which is very important. It's
1: so important. It's so important. So important, because... You need silliness and happiness in life. It's very, very important. We're all real people and doing things. I guess at Lindenbaum also, so I studied here for three out of my five years of rabbinical school, and um, many women were pregnant over those time periods and having children. So there was a lot of conversations about pregnancy and child rearing. Those are a lot of our conversations. But also then, you know, someone found this interesting or difficult section that we were learning and that conversation just continues on until lunchtime or you know read something interesting not related necessarily to what we're learning but still within the torah world and hey does anyone have any ideas on this and i don't know or what are your personal practices in Nida? That happened one day. Yeah. Well,
0: if you can't talk about that <laughs> among women in rabbinical school, I don't know where you can, right? I mean, yeah, no. It's was got to be the place. It
1: was just really a fascinating... That was probably one of the most fascinating lunches. i just sitting at this table in the middle of the dining hall. And like one woman started, I don't even know how they started, and just started asking, i like, all right, who does this chumrah? And who yeah. does this and who does... And it was just... It was really cool. Um, but yeah.
0: So when I was in yeshiva... Once I went to Hamiftar, and Mm -hmm. Rabbi Bravender was the Rosh Hashiva there. Okay. And once Rabbi Gideon Sylvester, who's extremely active among uh, British British youth, yeah. So he, for a little while, was the uh, director at Hamiftar, the the office and recruiting and that kind of thing. Uh, Maybe a year or two. It's a very interesting job. It's kind of like I don't know if you know the movie Spinal Tap. Yeah. um, And the drummer keeps on. uh, The drummers keep on. They have. They always have to get new drummers. So the director of Hamiftar is like that. Like there's, yeah. they, they once had a, um, a gathering, like a reunion, and uh, the guy in charge was like, okay, raise your hand if you were at one point the director of Yeshivat Hamiftar. <laughs> so many <laughs> hands went, went up. But, um, but Rabbi Sylvester is a, a very uh, accomplished rabbi in his own right in, um, in England, and so he was telling us a story about how they were going to oh, so the chaplaincy. They were in an elevator Uh, visiting someone in the hospital, and someone had passed away, and they were making funeral arrangements and asking certain questions, and Rabbi Bravinder turned to Rabbi Sylvester and said, "Uh, Gideon, this is rabbinics.
1: Yeah, okay.
0: So that, I'd say, like, Torah study can make you who you are, even if you're not necessarily teaching Torah on a daily basis. However, someone, like, you might want, I'm I'm wondering if maybe you really wish you were teaching more, but you're more in the elevator um, doing that kind of thing.
1: Yes. So it's interesting. So part of chaplaincy training is, which is what I've been doing this year. I'll continue doing next year before I write my papers for board certification. There's a lot of personal reflection on the work and also theological reflection. So I had to write a theological reflection this year and um, I actually really liked it. it. My theological reflection, so every, I'll go backwards. When we present in class, which we have to do, we write verbatim. So we'll take a conversation we had with a patient, family, or staff, write it out, show what we did well, show what we didn't do well, and then we have to do a theological reflection on each of these conversations, uh, which have become one of my favorite things. And then we had to do a theological reflection on all of pastoral care. How do we, what is what is driving us from our theology?
0: So it's fascinating, like what, you want to like share an example of a, a theological reflection on... On a patient? Yeah.
1: So there was a woman who, uh, I will call her Athena. That is okay. not her given name.
0: Okay. So That's I'm way to go.
1: protecting her by HIPAA. Okay. Um, so I won't give too many details because HIPAA is real. And she was in the hospital from April through July when she passed away. Uh, she was a 39-year-old woman with metastatic cancer. It was actually quite awful um, and really... I was with her for all of these months and got to know her and her family. And one day, I, they told her that there was nothing else to be done, that she was going to die.
0: To give her a certain time, like in this, this is on, on TV, uh, you know. I... So, yeah, <laughs>
1: sometimes they, t- they will tell people that it's, they don't usually give hours. They'll yeah. say weeks to months yeah. or days to weeks. Um, but she was going to be going to hospice, which yeah. meant there was no more medical treatment um, except for comfort. And I remember sitting with her after that day, and it wasn't the first time, and it wasn't going to be the last time, where we spoke about where she shared her fears of dying and what she's going to miss out on. She has a three, had a three-year-old son.
0: Yeah, I mean, she's really young. Like it's, you yeah. Know, this is really tragic.
1: It was extremely tragic. It was.
0: I mean, we're not that much younger.
1: No, not at all. Um, not not even, even, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> getting. Uh,
0: I got tissues here.
1: It's okay. Yeah. I, uh, I. Anyways, so having this conversation about her and her fears of dying and how she feels bad that she's going to cause her son to be sad. In the future, right now he's three. He's not totally going to necessarily understand, but in the yeah. future he's going to recognize that his mother died, and that she's upset for herself. That she's going to miss out on him growing up. And she also wants to know, what does death feel like? Is it going to be painful? Is it right. going to hurt? Like, what happens when you die? So, fine. So, I had that whole conversation. That sounds it, like
0: a really hard conversation. Yes. Like, I'm trying to picture myself, I'm studying social work, and death. You know, the, the, these very personal things, so I'm like, what do you, what do you say? What do you do?
1: Um, you're just there in yeah. the moment. Um, in our training, we're told to just reflect emotions and to just be there because there's nothing else to do. There are no words that I can say. It's not going to be better. It's, I don't know what death is like. Um, and so you sit there, maybe hold her hand and go back the next day uh, to show that you're there. And the conversations about death and dying don't get easier at all. Um, she was not the first person that I had that conversation with this past year. And it wasn't any easier than the first time. I remember feeling and taking on ways of being a chaplain of my colleagues. Because we each have our, our styles. And I was just like borrowing words that I've heard them say in their verbatims. Because I really, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't, yeah, but I did. I stood there with tears in my eyes, holding her hand. I was just there. Um, so, going on to the theological reflection side. <laughs> uh,
0: I think even this demonstration of, like, you know, you're, you're really feeling the emotions of what it was like, and now shifting over to a theological reflection, I think you're going to talk about it, but it sounds almost like you're going from this kind of emotional experience and then theologically... Is it it's disconnect? a brain
1: experience, um, which has been really fascinating yeah. in chaplaincy training. At yeah. the beginning of the year, I realized that for five years or seven years, however long I've been studying seriously, what people wanted from me was my brain, and I needed to know things, and I needed to memorize things, and I needed to be able to intellectually play play with halakha, in not a negative term of play, but you know when you're answering a question and it's a difficult question. It's not straightforward you you have to be able to grapple with all the things that you know and it's definitely an intellectual game whereas with chaplaincy it's about feeling it's about allowing yourself which I'm not always the best at but I'm getting better at it as allowing yourself to feel the pain and to feel the suffering and to suffer with those people if I think about the families and patients that I was closest with it was the times in where I did suffer with them I wouldn't change anything I did for any of those people, even though it was the most difficult things that I've done.
0: Right. I mean, you've achieved a level of self-awareness where you've figured out which components are involved in the experience.
1: Yeah, I, thanks to my supervisors and class and being forced to do it.
0: <laughs> so you've had some, some good training in that respect.
1: Yeah, we have about um, an hour of individual supervision a week and two, hour, two, cla- two classes of group processing and two full days of group work.
0: It's amazing. I mean, social workers should be that lucky. But it's, again, you're dealing with really, really heavy stuff.
1: I mean, so is the social worker working on the ICU.
0: Right, and they well, get they might get an hour of supervision a week, or 50 minutes.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, I think that social workers, even if they're working in a school or in a youth home, like to hear some of the stories that I'm sure they hear. They're not much easier. They might not be dealing with someone imminently dying. Yeah. But they're probably hearing about not so great home life.
0: Sure. Abuse. I mean, last year I I heard a lot about abuse. It could be sexual abuse. It could be, um, emotional abuse. Uh, Neglect is another one. Yeah. And, um, you're talking about sitting with the pain. I mean, that's, that's really hard. Like, I think it's, that's one of the biggest challenges, the defense mechanisms that all of us have. And then society feeds us so many additional defense mechanisms that we can use. It's like, hey, we have an entire Walmart full of defense mechanisms, whether it's reaching for my phone, i distracting myself, and then in the therapy room itself. So it's, right. it's hard. It's, uh, it's
1: really hard. And some of the defense mechanisms, I feel like we use defense mechanisms as a negative, mm-hmm. but sometimes they're necessary and they're in a positive. It's just what do you do late? Like how do you process it, right? So to be able to sit in that room and not break down,
0: yeah. you
1: do need to have a defense mechanism. Because you need to be there um, in order to get your job done. But then it's, okay, when I leave that room, Where do I, what do I do with myself? And right. I've done a, I did a lot of research this year on compassion fatigue, and, mm. which is also known as secondary trauma, which yeah. is also known as burnout. Right. And how do we combat that for those who are in all t- forms of caring professions?
0: Yeah, we, we learn about it all the time.
1: Yeah. So, so let's get
0: to this, uh, theological, theological thing. Yeah, just okay. there's, there's so, so much, uh, right.
1: So we're talking about death and dying. <laughs> yeah. What is death like? And the first thing that came to my mind was the end of Moir Katan. Okay. Where at the end of Moir Katan is, I forget which rabbis, but one is one rabbi is having a conversation with another rabbi who's about to die.
0: Yeah. And
1: he says, come back to me after you're dead. Tell me what death is like. Okay. And the rabbi says, all right. And he dies, comes to him in a dream. And he goes all right. So what was death like? And he said that death is like um, taking a hair out of milk. There's also another version that's like getting uh, bloodletting.
0: Right, right? That, that used to be cool.
1: Right, and it, so it like, doesn't hurt so much, but like there's a prick, or there's there's no there's no pain.
0: But getting a hair out of milk. Yeah. Like you, it doesn't hurt at all. It doesn't hurt at all. It's yeah. Just yeah.
1: Yeah, and the other one's like getting a blood test. Which there's is a lot of
0: bracing for the when the leech well, leech. I mean, you get a shot, yeah. you know, and it's like. The, sh- right. the sh- shot's going to hurt, and then when you get the shot, it's like, okay, whatever.
1: And someone pinched you. And mm-hmm. that, but he said that, he said, okay, that death doesn't sound so bad, so would you want to do this again? And he said no, because the fear of death is greater than death itself. And so, you know, thinking about her, Athena, yeah. in relation to this story of the Talmud, one, it's, oh, wow, we've been, people have been grappling with yes. this for centuries. The fear of death is real. Yeah. And even our greatest leaders within our community, or I guess history, were afraid of death. The Gemara then goes on there where it um, the angel of death comes to all these rabbis and is like, hey, it's time to die. <laughs> and each of them has a reason to push away the angel of death. That um, sounds
0: like Monty Python almost where uh, he comes and he's like, yeah, I can't, now it's not good.
1: Yeah, I'm in the, I'm in the market. Can yeah. you come back later? Yeah. I'm about to eat truma. Can you come back later? Yeah. So these the greatest of leaders are afraid of dying. So then, obviously, normal people are going to be. Um, so grappling with that. So that would be a theological reflection. Where can I find somewhere within my theology something that shows that? And at the same time, sometimes you learn things from your theological reflection that you didn't necessarily think of.
0: But would you ever share your theological reflection or maybe stories like that with a, uh, a patient yeah because in social work we try to keep religion out even if it may be of comfort I guess it's a it's a you judgment it's call of comfort I mean it's a judgment call but you've really oh. got to be sensitive that some people are hungry for a theological or a religious I guess if they're talking to you and you're the chaplain so they know what they're getting themselves into so right. I guess kind of putting up put on my social work perspective yeah. aside, they're coming to you to hear such things
1: not necessarily okay but they also know that I'm a chaplain. Yeah. Right. So one of the first things I ask people yeah. when I walk into a room is: Is there a religion or spiritual, spiritual, uh, or spirituality that you associate or connect with? Spiritual practice—that's the word. Okay. Um, so off the bat, I'm asking questions and about religion. I'm gonna poke and prod about your religious beliefs, and it could be you say, "I'm atheist. I don't believe in God." And I say, all right, we can still talk. I talk about other things. So there was a patient who I was very close with who was a devout atheist. He was a composer. And he, we actually spoke a lot about his music and where music fit into his life. And some of the music that he wrote or plays that he wrote and how that reflected his life experience and how those shared his connectivity both to greater community, but also to, to his, his being in this world. So I think that spiritual practice is not necessarily God. Um, and just because one doesn't believe in God or know if God exists, doesn't mean that we can't have a conversation. And if I'm going to bring, let's say, a story from the Talmud in, because people will ask me about, you know, what should I do? Or, you know, how, what does death feel like? Yeah. then I can say, well, in my tradition, in the, in the Talmud, there's stories of the rabbis and they talk about it in this way. So I'm not pushing it on them. I'm not saying this is what you should believe um, because they might not be Jewish. Most likely they're not. Uh, but they also are getting an answer and they can see, oh, these types of religious people have grappled with.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I have so many follow up questions about that, but uh, okay. I want to move on to a different thing. I want to shift gears a bit and ask you about the response to this career that you've chosen. And what I want to ask you is, I just, just from talking now, sounds like you're doing amazing work and you've gotten really good training along the way to enable you to help people in like a really deep and profound like transformative mm-hmm. space. So now you're Rabbi Aaron London. Is the world ready for this? Is the world ready for you and your colleagues? Like what kind of response... Is there to uh, to your crew?
1: It's extremely varied. So I would say, like, it's on the spectrum of, oh my gosh, that's amazing! Yeah. You are helping the Jewish people. To you guys are ruining the Jewish community, and yeah. you should be shut down and shamed, and everything you touch and do. Even if you're teaching Torah at a high level, you are ruining you are ruining the Torah. So
0: and things in between. And
1: everything in between. So either we are helping build up the Jewish community, or we are slowly making it die and, dis- and disintegrate, which is hard. It's not, it's not an easy thing to carry. It's not an easy thing uh, to be told, um, especially on the, you're destroying the Jewish people, uh, especially because for myself, and I think for, I, I'll speak for all my colleagues, the Jewish community is of utmost importance that's why we're here. That's why we're doing it. We would never even fathom the idea of destroying Judaism. Uh, And so for people to think that, it's really difficult. And it means that we fight for our existence. It means we have to push ourselves. It means we have to silence ourselves. It means that we have to conform to certain things and be okay with people putting us down in order and pushing more.
0: I'm curious where some of these voices have come from. Were there any surprises in terms of where you received support and then like surprises from where you received resistance
1: Uh, or were they
0: usual suspects?
1: So no, I think that there's, I'm more, I'm always surprised when there are people from the quote unquote liberal modern Orthodox world, whether it's rabbis or congregants that are not for it.
0: Right. One would think that purely on the basis of feminism alone, that Mm -hmm. it should be a big green light.
1: Yeah, and you have institutions where I think to my colleagues. So I have just heard a lot about my job. In some ways, I have the easiest job of my colleagues.
0: You were saying earlier that in your job, there isn't much resistance. It's a no-brainer.
1: It's a no-brainer. I do play a political game in my job. So I worked with staff a lot this year to make sure people don't introduce me as rabbi. They introduce me as a Jewish chaplain. And I will determine, should I use the title rabbi or not? Uh, most of the chaplains don't go by a title anyways, so it would only be in a time where someone requested a rabbi that I would think about it. Although my business cards do say rabbi, but I won't give them out to everyone. And for me, in the hospital, I'm okay with playing this game because my job in the hospital, at least when it comes to patient care, is to provide support and comfort to patients and their families. My title has nothing to do with that. And if the way that I'm going to be able to provide care is for them not to know explicitly that I am a rabbi, then that's awesome. And I have no issue. When I get invited to be a scholar in residence, yeah. I will have a title. Yeah. And if someone does not want to give me a title, I won't go speak there. And I see that as very different. As one is, it is about me and my existence, and one is not about me.
0: Right. I think that would apply also to to male rabbis, that there are times where they just want to be known by their first name and not necessarily have that that title, but I think, you know, when it comes to scholar-in-residence, and there's certain times where you really want to make sure that you do have that kind of recognition.
1: Well, I think it's also, when it comes to women, I, I actually am a firm believer in title, and I think that title is important, maybe more so for women, and maybe more so in the Jewish community, where title actually means something. We do show a different relationship to those with a title of rabbi that we show to those who don't
0: absolutely we call them rabbi i'm certainly not comfortable calling any rabbi by their first name if they have followers in fact one of my teachers from hamiftar a different rabbi schrader he said there are two kinds of rabbis there are rabbis who have a following they have Mm -hmm. people who congregants or if they're not of any type Mm -hmm. of following and then there's people who received ordination but that just means that they they have the rabbi the ordination but they don't have followers and he said for anyone who who has a following he said it doesn't matter who they are or who their followers are but if there's a person who's looked upon as the leader of a following you should always call them rabbi and he said he, he said this is this is a talk he gave for students for jli students going yeah. to secular colleges that what do you do if there's you know a conservative or reformed female rabbi um or even a male reform mm-hmm. and a rabbi and You have certain beliefs about orthodoxy. If they've got a following, you've got to treat them as such.
1: Right, and it's about respect. But when I, I think about my colleagues, who a friend who is not allowed to go by any title whatsoever because the institution that hired her won't allow her to, so she has to go by Miss, which means that the people that she's interacting with are going to treat her significantly different than any of her male colleagues who have similar education. Or my colleagues who the institutions that they are a part of chose their title and then changed their title on them in order, and said, if you want this job, you're gonna have to go buy X. We, and it, it all has to do with politics. But I think that by playing this game, they want, they want the title that is the least, in my opinion, they want the title that has the least actual power. Um, so that it's like okay, we'll give you a title. You really want this, blah blah blah. But like, it's not. It doesn't really mean anything, and right. I think that's really hugely problematic.
0: Right. These institutions seem to have ambivalence. On the one hand, they really they're going to hire hire this person to work there, but they're not yet willing to kind of recognize them for what that person believes that they really are.
1: Right. Um, and I think that's that does a huge disservice because it basically tells us who who are in this, whatever right. this is, that in order... Like, we kind of have to give up a little bit of ourselves. Um, if, we really want, if we really want to do something, we need to, we need to be okay with kind of denigrating ourselves a tad bit, if not a lot. Right.
0: Well, these institutions sound like... On the one hand, it's very frustrating for someone like you to work for them. On the other hand, they might see themselves as um, taking maybe a leap of faith or a leap in the right direction and you might know more about what these places are, but that they are going to hire a female rabbi. They aren't yet fully on board, but they're putting their toes in the water, and it's frustrating for you, but they might think, hey, you know, we're, we're doing our best right here.
1: Yes, some of them are. Okay. And, I mean, I, I, I'm torn with my feelings on these things, because yeah. on the one hand, I do feel grateful, and on the other hand, I was talking to a friend once who's not in the rabbinic field, yeah. and she was talking about feminism and yeah. how women sometimes feel that they need to be grateful for things that should be... Move on, my love, that which is absurd, right? Like, it shouldn't be that I should feel grateful that you're showing me an ounce of respect. Right. It should be, of course I'm going to respect you as a human being because right. you're a person and... You, and, and you're a person of a certain amount of knowledge and you so I shouldn't have to be grateful for the fact right. that you are going to be respectful to me. Um, I should just expect that. Um, and so I feel when we when we say okay they you know they're trying to help and do their best and it's right. really complicated. There's a part of me that is grateful and then there's a part of me that's like no like, right. what, this is ridiculous. Uh, why should I be grateful for not having being respected?
0: I totally hear that. I am thinking in terms of, like, sitting on a shul board and just how the politics of the day are just schlep along so much that, like, even though, yeah, I think, obviously, no one should have to feel grateful for something that's obvious, but because maybe the times move slower than they should, that progress, like... I I'm think s- that
1: people don't think... I think that many of those pl- the places that yeah. are hiring and yeah. training women in any of these things are, many of their intentions, I want to believe, are coming from good places. I think that they sometimes do not think about the implications that it has for those who it's being done to. And so in the theoretical, it makes sense. And in the practical, there's a person there who is fighting for basic respect and dignity and it takes a lot out of a person to fight for that um when you when you're just fighting just for the right to exist it's exhausting um and at a certain point i know whatever i guess for myself i know for others like you kind of want to just give up and you might actually just give up
0: was Uh, there a time when you were like thinking about just Stepping away from this fight and the struggle. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I didn't. I, I hope that it was the right choice not to. Yeah. I took steps back from it, I guess, um, a little bit. I became less of a fighter and more kept my head down and studied to get through because I knew nothing was going to change.
0: So despite all that, you've hung around you know, tenaciously. You, know, you and, and your colleagues are trying to get your feet to really make this much more of a, a normal... It's, it's already normal, but it, it just isn't as much present, you're saying.
1: I think that it's, it's not... I don't really... I don't know about other people. I'll talk to for myself. As I said in the beginning when I decided that I wanted to be a rabbi, it wasn't to... It's not that we need to have thousands of rabbi, female rabbis. It's that there should be place for those who have the study um, or the credentials to be able to work, um, and to work with dignity in whatever capacity that they desire. And in the same way that men who get smicha, some have communities, some work in schools, some work in yeshivas, some work in hospitals, some do other things. I would love for that to be the reality also for women. And, and that it's actually, and the more that there's the norm and, it means that we don't have to make the headlines for everything that we're doing. Because it's just like, well, actually, I wanted to study for smicha because I love Torah, and I want to be a high school teacher so I can spread my love of Torah. That would be amazing.
0: And that doesn't have to be like a Jerusalem Post <laughs> candidate for talkbacks. Like, it just is. It just, it
1: just is. Yeah. And Or I want to have a community because my dream of community is for it to be an open, welcoming place for all people, regardless of their marital status um, and child status. Um, I want davening to look in a certain way, and I want women to be able to feel comfortable to come, and that the women's section will always be open, and it won't be crowded with boxes, and the lights will be turned on, and the air conditioning is going to be on also. That's not... that shouldn't be major news.
0: (laughs) It really uh, really should not. Regarding all this, let's say 0 being no progress, 10 being full open progress, where would you put things, if you want to take the pulse of, let's say, the Jewish community today, where would you put, where would you put it?
1: That is a very hard question.
0: Yeah. Um, Thank you.
1: <laughs> I'm going to say somewhere between four and seven, depending on the community and the space. Because, because I don't think that the Jewish community and even the modern Orthodox Jewish community functions the same everywhere. Even within the same city. Oh, for sure. And so... New York
0: being an outlier because it's just a world unto itself.
1: Right. You know, New York Jewry yeah. is different than Judaism if you go out to Kansas, which is going to be different if you go to Jerusalem, which is going to be different if you go to Tel Aviv. You know, in Jerusalem, actually, one of the, when I was studying here, one of the interesting things that happened... So in Jerusalem, there's many places. For, most people know of women who learn at high levels and teach at high levels. And I went to Tel Aviv one Shabbat. This was, I don't know, I guess like five or six years ago. So maybe things have changed. And I was talking to someone, and he's totally chiloni, totally secular. And he was telling me why, how it's not Sanua for me to go and give a dvar Torah in Shul. Okay. Even at the end of Shul. Yeah. Because I don't understand what men's minds are going, are thinking.
0: Right, which is a common... Which is
1: a common thing. But right. it was just so fascinating. This like very secular guy who probably was telling me that if I'm going to get up and speak words of Torah, that's not going to be modest. Um, And how different that would be here in Jerusalem, where there are women regularly who are teaching Torah. They might not be getting on the bima, they might not be teaching in the middle of shul, but women teach Torah.
0: sixth, seventh grade, and we had women teaching Torah who were pretty young, and like, you know, sixth and seventh grade is a very tumultuous time in terms of being distracted. I mean...
1: Yeah, they were just our
0: teachers, and we just we just learned. I mean, that's all it was. Like,
1: yeah, my response to him, I wanted to say, like, if you're gonna have problems sitting in shul and listening to me to teach Torah, you can leave the shul. I didn't say that. I was.
0: You wanted you wanted to you wanted to give a little something.
1: <laughs> but it is interesting to see how Judaism plays out differently. How what does where's a woman's place?
0: I do think that actually, I mean, if I'll give my two cents about that, please. I think that. That perspective of, well, if a woman's going to give a dvartoran shul and men's minds are going to be going to certain places, if the guy says that, he's probably being, to some extent, honest about what's going to be going on for him. And the question is, then, well, what does that say about, what does that say? I mean, it could be that he just thinks you're cute. Or it could be that he is routinely distracted when he goes to university and he's being taught. Is he? Oh, I, I
1: asked him and he said, no, it's different.
0: It, well, I'm, <laughs> right, if he has, like, a, let's say, a yeah. teacher that he finds attractive, does that distract him from the material, or is there something about Torah, per se uh, that there's, there's something that is kind of...
1: But I think that the, the opposite argument never happens. No one ever says to a good-looking male rabbi, you know, you getting up and giving the Devar Torah in shul is very distracting.
0: Right, Now on the other, exact opposite, <laughs> they'd say, this guy should be going to seminaries, they're going to love him, and... He's going to charm them and they're going to be turned on to Torah study. Let's get this, you know, exactly. the, that's I, like no one would say boo on such a line of thinking.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so I think, I, I think that my problem with it is more of the double standard where when I get up in shul, I'm wearing modest clothing and right. I'm not, I'm, I'm holding myself in a, you know, the right. norms of the community. And that is something and something that actually women clergy across the denominations talk about where they go to their synagogue or church and people will comment on their clothing or what they're wearing or how their makeup is done or how their hair is done. And the comments about attractiveness or non-attractiveness is seen as okay to talk about, whereas our male clergy colleagues, also across the religions and denominations, it's not, maybe it's spoken about, Right? I'm not going to say that people don't talk about the good-looking rabbi, pastor, or whatever. But no one's making; most people are not really making comments to their face, telling them that they need to change the way they're dressing.
0: So it really is a, a statement about, you know, how does the orthodoxy relate to, to these issues? I think you're feeling it in terms of your job, but I think that this whole idea of, well, how do we relate to people who are attractive? Is it a horrible distraction from this kind of... Um, I don't know, pure Torah word, or is it just part of the world we live in? I think that...
1: I mean, Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish. Why yeah. did they start? Because Rish Lakish was really beautiful. So...
0: So I think there's this kind of puritanical outlook, and that there's a lot of growth, I think, that in the Orthodox world that needs to happen, and you're feeling the brunt of it in terms of your position, but I think it actually has many applications.
1: Yeah. Oh, I think that it has to do with a lot of things, and... The place of women and
0: the dating world the dating struggles that people have um as they get older and as they get um,
1: older if they're clergy members if they're
0: yeah well we'll get to that (laughs) um but i wanted to ask you yeah so you get to talk to a lot of people you have an opportunity to kind of take the pulse of Mm -hmm. what's going on in the jewish world if you could say there's something like what's on people's minds like what do people come to talk about is there is there a certain issue that's really i don't want to use the word zeitgeist because it's pretentious but but what's What's on people's minds?
1: If I had to think about overall issues, both within community and, I think, in the hospital, I think that a huge issue is loneliness. Um, Loneliness, distance from community, not having a community, not feeling part of something. And that could be whether or not they're partnered.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah. Because as single people, there's this illusion that when people are partnered, a lot of that loneliness is solved, and you're saying that that's not... True. No,
1: that's right. not true. Right. Um, not partnership does not always does not fulfill all of loneliness, right? So in an ideal partnership, you're also going to have outside friends, sure, or potentially a religious community, and if you're not
0: and hobbies and your career, right, you're going to have those other and things. Your ideals, yeah.
1: So you might not have those other things, even though you have your partner, religious community. A lot of people, I think feel that it's lacking, that it's not giving them what they need or what they want or they don't feel that they can be part of the community.
0: Right, they come with expectations for what the religious community can offer and it's just not coming it's in. It's just
1: not or you don't even have expectations, but there's it's, there's not anything there. And so not and just because you have a self, it's not going to fulfill your religious needs. And so I think that loneliness and lack of connectivity and lack of community across the board.
0: Cool. Okay. So that's the pulse of the Jewish community now, and we don't have time to get into what to do about that, but I think that could fill many podcasts and its own right. Yep. We're going to move on to my favorite part of the show. This is what's called the 60-second soapbox. Okay. Okay, and what this is is I'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock Uh
1: huh.
0: and do this for all my guests. Mm-hmm. And it's an opportunity for you to talk uninterrupted for 60 seconds about anything that you think is important. Actually, anything at all. It doesn't have to be important. It's just something that you think... You want to use this space for to get up on that soapbox and just speak we're in or square
1: so So i can give you a bit bit terrifying it's yeah you can go
0: yeah okay so yeah (laughs) all right here we go 60 second soapbox on your marks get set begin
1: so i think off the conversation of community i think that religious jewish community needs to do a better job at Bringing, welcoming people and noticing those who are alone. Whether it means that they are single by choice, widow, divorce, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 60s, 80s, no matter what. Um, I think that we're losing a lot of people because of just the burden of trying to fit in and not finding a place and, and feeling the loneliness and wanting to go away from that. And we just need to do a better job at bringing in the community because that's a really horrible reason to lose people. That is all.
0: Ten seconds left.
1: Oh. I'm just going to waste it with filler words. That is... Yeah.
0: All right, 60 seconds are up. I think you're the first person (laughs) to ever come in under time. And you are (laughs) really... really destroying the stereotypes of rabbis and say you know, put a rabbi in a room they're going to give a speech and you came in under time so
1: well i am a female rabbi so you know yeah, stereotypes changing, are going to be different
0: <laughs> changing things yeah they're going to have to come up with a whole new range of, of rabbi jokes for
1: it's true it's true you yeah. are going to have to be can't give dad jokes right it just doesn't fly
0: yeah a rabbi a priest and uh you know walk into a bar we to have to change all of it. All of it. Yeah, maybe that's why people are so resistant because they just they like their old jokes.
1: Yeah, they're gonna to have to come up with new jokes and new humor.
0: We've talked about a lot of really great things. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask was, and you alluded to this also before a little bit, but okay. Um, okay so I have a friend who's a rabbi. He went to YU. Mm-hmm. Actually, let me ask you this: if you if you could have gone to any of the male rabbinical um, training schools, which one would you have picked? I guess they're not so many, but there's between Israel or, or America.
1: I feel like I probably would have ended up in Gush. Yeah. If you so, asked me, like, when I was 18, maybe later in life I might have ended up in Malay Goba.
0: So not YU, not Hovei, definitely an Israeli place?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I made Aliyah yeah. to be here. Yeah. I had no intention. I actually spoke to Maharat multiple times um, and spoke to them before I made Aliyah and decided to make Aliyah instead of going there. And then my... Whole intention was to be here. Yeah. I had no intention of going to America.
0: Right. Definitely
1: no intention of living in New York. But you know, people la- plan and God laughs at us. And wholeheartedly true. Uh, so yeah, I was not going to go. None of those schools were interesting. Okay. So. Yeah,
0: well, I have a friend who went to YU. He's mm-hmm. a rabbi now, and um, we were at, we were talking about how he doesn't always say that he's rabbi. Mm-hmm. and he was, he's now married, but when he was going out with his future wife, um, they were at some, I don't know, maybe it was a wine festival, some summer event, and a bunch of, I guess, friends of his came over to him, or former mm-hmm. former students, maybe even former congregants. They came up, and they were like, oh, rabbi. And she looked at him, and she's like, what? And he's like, well, I guess, she's like, you're a rabbi? He's like, yeah, I guess now's as good time as I need to tell you. So he had... He didn't say whether it was a few months into the relationship or weeks, but um, (laughs) it had been a while. So, I mean, how does that go for you? Like, do you tell people you're a rabbi or has anything?
1: I don't right away. I mean, it's a little bit harder now. So when I was in Israel, I worked as a recreation therapist in a nursing home. I was teaching theater.
0: Yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah, and directing. And my master's is in theater. So there was a large part of my life that was not that. And I talk about... What do you do during the day? And, you know, dabble in like, oh, I learn a little bit, but I'm also, you know, I work in the nursing home and I teach theater. Whereas now I say that I'm a chaplain. I don't, I, if someone asks me, what do I do? I say I'm a hospital chaplain. Yeah. I don't say that I'm a rabbi. Um, the
0: sharper people might say, wait, so...
1: Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Yeah. Is that there's no, the, so then the question is like, so you're a clergy? And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to lie right. about it. But I'm not going to... Say it. It'll. It would be very different if I was in a synagogue, if I was in a shul this year, um, because I don't really know how I would hide what I do all day.
0: Right, but there's a desire to kind of keep it down low at first.
1: Oh yeah, because I have found, and some other friends of mine have also found that men find it very intimidating. One that I know Torah at a high yeah. level.
0: Yeah.
1: And two that I'm a rabbi and also something that I've been thinking about is going back to the question of fighting and being part of that fight. So it's my it's been my choice to be part of that fight.
0: Yeah. And
1: it's also something that I've been doing for as long as I remember. I remember being on a summer program and there was a Beit Midrash and they said, what do you want to learn? And I said, I want to learn Gemara. And they're like, why would you want to do that? So this is part of just breathing for me. Sometimes, yeah, it feels like it's choking, but it's my breath. Yeah. Whereas any guy who will date me or marry me, will have to be okay with being part of it because it will also ultimately affect him. So it's not just that he will have to be supportive of me, but it also means if he goes to a shul that thinks that this is an abomination, people might stop talking to him. People might stop giving him aliyot. People might stop associating with him. He might be listening to the people in shul talk badly about all these women, and he's going to be like, wait, that is my significant other
0: right and then then they'll just avoid him so that they can get to say what they want to say right
1: and so it it becomes something that has to be his choice to be part of this thing right that is not easy to be part of so i think that's also a part of it yeah which is interesting and
0: although it seems like if you said it's between four and seven in terms of progress it's a tough life being married to a rabbi and that even you know for a male rabbi female rabbi congregants talk and they say all kinds of things and Um, Yeah. Rabbi Riskin, he said, he'd say, if everyone likes you, you're doing something wrong. But if everyone hates you, then you're a jerk in terms of being a community leader.
1: But I think that there's a difference when you're already the community leader and people are talking about you versus your wife might be a high school Gemara teacher. And the community is still going to speak badly about her solely because she has the title of rabbi.
0: And yeah, hopefully that four (laughs) to seven. I mean, When that's not happening, where would you put that on the zero to ten scale?
1: When that's not happening?
0: Yeah, when, when a community can just kind of take it for granted.
1: Oh, that's definitely on like the seven scale. Seven to eight.
0: So Yeah, you're saying there's no, we're not there yet at all. No. Okay.
1: Um, so I think, I think that's also a thing of, you know, what to do with that. But I've also, I remember a few years ago, um, talking a few years ago where someone wanted to set me up with someone. And the, the middle person told the guy, you know, I was studying for Smecha. And he goes, oh my God, I can't date a rabbi. And that was it. Yeah. And it wasn't a religious thing. It was. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it turns, it pushes people away. They don't.
0: So you want them to get to know you as who you are just even a little bit. Well, yeah,
1: I think that's anyone, right? Anyone who does any type of public or profession of, you know, our friends who are doctors are hopefully not only a doctor. And so the same for me is I'm a rabbi, but like there's a lot of other things that I do and like and care about can also have conversations about. I don't, Again, I don't need to have a conversation about God and Torah all the time.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I if all my conversations were about social work, I mean, oh my goodness. You know?
1: You'd be bored out of your mind.
0: Well, I don't know if I'd be bored with other people. It just gets real heavy. And, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Who
1: wants to do that?
0: It just sounds like a lot of this is about just lowering the temperature a bit and just it's like, okay, well, I'm a regular person. I have what I like to do. I have my, my downtime. Yes, there are occupational hazards as being a rabbi, as there are with other fields. But... Yep again having to kind of conceal it in order to be able to have that conversation and to allow that to kind of build up.
1: Yeah and if you talk to other clergy from across the board so a lot of people hide the clerginess um, also because people are afraid that by them being clergy they're quote-unquote holier than and so then you have to act differently and without and so then you you really truly forget that that person is Most likely just a normal person that happened to go in that path.
0: Rabbis are people, too.
1: Rabbis are people, too. Clergy are people, too. Yeah.
0: And included in that subset is the growing number of female rabbis.
1: And Yeah, it's growing.
0: This has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming here to uh, share share a slice of uh, what you've been up to.
1: Thank you very much for having me. This has been fun.
0: Yeah. So this has been the Everyone is Interesting podcast where we interview people who aren't necessarily famous but certainly are interesting. Uh, maybe maybe one day you will be a little bit famous could happen it could happen so if you like the show and you have any comments if there's anything that resonated with you be sure to drop us a line on the facebook page and stay tuned for more episodes coming up For everyone is interesting see you next time